1: One of the big news items of the day is Pinterest and the fact that it's seeking a valuation of $9 billion with its IPO that it's currently marketing, uh, which is significantly below the valuation of the company back in 2017, its last private funding round. And without delving into this specific company, it is an interesting question. What does this say about the private financing market? Joining us now, Randy Schwimmer, head of Capital Markets and Originations at Churchill Asset Uh, and I want to start here because it does raise questions about whether things are getting a little frothy in private capital markets.
2: Well, you're, Lisa, it's a great question. It's a question that a lot of investors are asking. It's been difficult when you look at the environment that we've been in from an economic perspective and a rates perspective since October. Which market are we looking at? Are we looking at the economy in October when everyone was thinking about rate hikes? Are we looking at December when we had a 20% correction in the public markets? Are we looking at January where rates and prices were on, prices were covering and rates on hold? Or are we looking at April where we see record Dow, we see you know, 190,000 jobs created on Friday and all of a sudden the recession is gone. The problem with what um, the public markets are showing us is there's no conviction, there's no confidence in the direction of the economy and where the markets are going, which is why private credit is really focused on companies that don't trade. In our business, none of the businesses that we're investing in are public. They're all private capital created and supported businesses. And the beauty of that is that the volatility is taken away. And the worry about the day-to-day moves of the markets and so forth is taken away. So it's it's actually a good place to be right now.
0: So Randy, I've noticed that private equity firms really over the last several years, I've noticed them raising funds and allocating funds to direct lending businesses, kind of bypassing the banks a little bit or helping the lenders to bypass the banks, particularly for some middle market companies. What do you think about that direct lending to middle market? Is that someplace investors should be looking?
2: It, that's exactly what we do, Paul. Our, all of our businesses really uh, investing in senior debt with middle market companies, all of which are backed by private equity firms. The beauty of that is that these private equity firms, particularly the ones we're dealing with, have experience in investing equity directly below the senior debt that we're investing. And in. so you've got a cushion there. You've also got expertise. These are businesses firms that have been investing um, in these companies in equity over decades. And so we have experience over those same decades with these firms. I think it's a, a, right now, again, given what's going on in the economy, which is actually pretty constructive for credit, think about where we are, 2% rates, 2% inflation, a less than 4% uh, unemployment rate. This is very constructive for credit. And I think in general, people are feeling that right now.
1: So there has been a lot of money that has gone into private credit for exactly the proposition that you just put out there. The idea that you're not going to have the day-to-day volatility. You can invest long-term. Often there is a cushion if you're investing in the debt of some kind of private equity underneath it. All of that said, I have to wonder whether this time, at the very least, returns are going to be much lower than they have been historically, given how much money has been coming in, given how much liquidity is sloshing around. So what's your view that? Are you telling investors to lower their expectations for returns?
2: No, actually what what we're saying is that r- returns, um, particularly for our business, have been very steady over the last you know, 15 years that we've been investing capital. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right, Lisa. There's a lot of capital coming into private credit as a asset class, as a general asset class, um, $100 billion, according to some figures. But the vast majority of that is going to higher yield Strategies, more opportunistic credit, junior capital, and so forth. We're at the senior debt level, and that's kind of a. If you look at the industry as a, as an overall matter, it's kind of in that seven to nine percent unlevered yield. That's a very conservative, low risk proposition, and there's plenty of investors who like that given where it's going on in the rest of the market.
1: What kind of companies are you lending to? It's
2: a great question. So most of the businesses we're lending to are business-to-business companies. Very few of them have direct uh, exposure to the, to the consumer, and that's a good thing as far as we're concerned, because sometimes consumer tastes come and go. But businesses are really focused right now on revenue cycle and cost cycle. So what's going on if revenues are generally flat, and then this is a sort of a flattish GDP, how do I make money, more money, improve my cash flows, I cut costs, and a lot of the companies that we're lending to are businesses that are servicing those businesses who are trying to cut costs. So it's actually in any economic cycle, it's actually a good place to be.
0: So we are ten years into this economic expansion. Um, how much more? So as you think about your position, your portfolio, how do you put new money to work
2: today? Yeah, I know yeah. people are worried about that. Yeah, Paul, it's a great question. And what? What? Since you don't know when the recession is going to be, and if you ask twenty people, they'll give you twenty different answers. We assume it's gonna be next year. We model into every investment that we do a 2020 recession. And we look at these businesses and say, okay, if we were lending to this business, what would it look like next year if we hit a recession and this company's revenues go down by 20% or 25%? How does it manage? And the ones that we don't get excited about, Lisa, to your question, are businesses that have high capex, that are more cyclical and less defensive and that would suffer significantly in a downturn.
1: 20 seconds. Do you think that there are pockets of the middle market and private lending market that are overheated and you just avoid them?
2: Well, we're not focused on the broadly syndicated market as one example. And and that's an area that, that tends to be more volatile because as capital comes and goes, and we've seen it actually going over the last six months because when rates were going down, people were looking for fixed income. Uh, so we tend to stay away from the larger companies that are more liquid and focus on, again, what we talked about, which is the Non correlated, less volatile middle market. Randy
0: Schwimmer, thank you so much. Randy is Senior Managing Director and Head of Origination and Capital Markets from Churchill Asset Management. He joined us here live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Thank you so much.
1: This week may still be the week when the United Kingdom leaves the EU, but for the time being, everything is the same as it ever was. And it is hard to avoid the sense that the country is on a road to nowhere. Words written uh, by our very own John Authors, Bloomberg Senior Editor for Markets and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us here in our Interactive broker studios. John, thank you so much for being with us. So let's start there, yeah. especially given the fact that you just came back from the UK.
3: Yes, yeah, so, well, I was in the UK for what we thought was going to be the week that Britain would actually leave, which was obviously all set up to be a very exciting week in British history it just turned out to be rather an aggravated uh, damp squib plenty of drama sound and fury signifying nothing Uh, and then this last week just gone I've been in Italy another country the country in Europe very interestingly where uh, the EU is least popular if you don't include the UK a lot of Italians have fed up with the EU and there's sort of good reasons why that might be the case but if you look at the opinion polls the number who actually wants to leave the EU is declining probably because they're seeing what a pathetic mess the British are making of it.
0: So it's interesting John one of the things I read all the time is that uh, the European Union is having its elections they're they're coming up and apparently the UK does not want to be involved and maybe the EU does not want the UK involved why?
3: Okay. This is the elections for the European Parliament, which many people argue needs to have more power than it does, but it still has considerable power within the uh, the, frame, the institutional framework of the EU. The elections are at the end of May, and it's broadly similar to Congress. Uh, every country gets uh, a certain number of representatives broadly in relation to its population. Now, the UK announced via the Article 50 process more than two years ago now that it was going to be out in time for these elections. So in American terms it's like Texas or some really big state has seceded and the remaining seats have been reapportioned between all the other countries of the EU. So if Britain now decides after all to be in an election in the in the election and it's difficult to see how they can not be be represented in the European Parliament if they're going to be a member of the European Union after May, then that means for everywhere else in Europe, suddenly all the party bosses and all the people running elections will have to redraw their maps and choose which candidates aren't going to be candidates after all. It's like Vermont thinking it had two representatives in Congress and then suddenly discovering at the last minute that Texas was going to take part after all, and it was only going to have one. How do you sort that one out? And then in the case of Britain, none of the parties are ready for this. Obviously, there's a risk that something strange could happen, which particularly at the moment means far right people could get in, far left people could get in. This could be a real horrible mess within britain
1: this is fascinating to me hmm. because it highlights just how improbable another referendum is because if yes. there is a a politi- uh, someone in leadership in britain if it's not teresa may whoever follows her yes. uh who is practical and pragmatic sees this scenario they're not going to call for another referendum
3: one would, one would certainly think not I, the one thing i would say very clearly is another election Given that we like, we, it's it's somewhat different from the American system, but broadly speaking, we have two major parties, and neither of those parties uh, coheres at all with the one critical issue of the moment, which is should we stay or stay in the EU or leave it. There are therefore a general election is the last way to actually decide that question. A number of the most prominent people on either side of the of the issue represent constituencies where the majority was against them in the referendum. So using a re- election isn't going to work. That said, yes, you can see why people, including those, including full disclosure myself, who would like the UK to remain after all, you can't realistically see how we would remain unless there is some democratic mandate for that. I, I, I would never suggest that we could change our minds without making, being clear that the country as a whole had changed its mind but how on earth do we uh, well, how I on have, earth do we get to I've been stage? calling
0: for this since the day Brexit was announced yes. which is okay let's do a do over here. <laughs> a second referendum. This has got to be getting some momentum back because nothing else appears to have any kind of support and Lisa's shaking her head no so we no. go back and forth <laughs> on this and we're no, not I even mean, British look, I, I
1: mean but no but, but I think that two to John's point, you can't go back at this point. There is no going back, right? You can't undo what has been done. And my question is just: What's the least bad option right now, given the fact that another referendum is looking increasingly unlikely because of this political backdrop in the EU, among many other issues?
3: Well, it, exactly. It's a it's a horrible mess. I, I, what Theresa May is. Looking for, and this I hope now gives some perspective on why the the issue at the moment is how big another extension the British get. She's looking for the shortest extension she can get away with to try to bodge something in the time available, which therefore means without a general election or a referendum, you can't organise one that quickly. We've now worked out that the the European Parliament doesn't get seated until it's not as big a delay as you get here in the States but it's another week or two after the election so maybe we could stay until the day before they get seated before uh, before formally exiting that's why she wants a short break if we don't have anything other than that short break basically there's no sense in it being much less than about two years and the Euro- Europe just tells the whole of the once proud nation of Britain to go away and sort itself out again from scratch because it doesn't know what it's doing To some extent, and I've seen analogies, it's interesting, one or two quite famous pro-Brexiteers are beginning to say this. It's similar to the kind of advice you would give to somebody who's going through a relationship breakup. Just don't make any big life decisions while you're this disturbed, while you're this upset. And in the same way, because the whole country is politically coming to something, approaching, you know, a nervous breakdown, a marital breakdown. This is just not the time to make big decisions about the future of the country. So therefore, take a two-year break. Well, I don't know,
0: John. You were in London last week. Tom Keane was in London last week. I can't believe the two of you couldn't have fixed this while you were over. I thought that was the, the plan all along. The marital problem, uh, yes. Tom the Tom
3: Keen is just what we need. We'll, yes, we'll, we'll, exactly. we, we, we can elect him, elect him Prime Minister, and yeah, then we'll uh, he'll fix it. Then, then we'll be where the, 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 certainly, certainly the misunderstanding of the Irish question would never have happened. With uh, anyway, carry on. Yes. So, John, just real yes, quick, yes. Uh, tw- twenty yes. seconds. Does Theresa May's government survive this? It survives the next few weeks because there's no other alternative. Uh, to the extent that Theresa May has a government, I'm not sure it's even survived at this point. Uh, it's almost purely one. I was going to say one man for himself. And at least, at least we've at least we've got broader, broader rep gender representation in British politics. Uh, right. But but uh, one person at, at this point is almost one person for themselves. Well, the good thing about uh, Brexit,
0: it's like the, the full employment act for, for for John here, John Authors. I mean, we always need him to explain things to us, what's going on and every day. And he's the
1: best at it, like so I've got to say. Yes,
0: yeah, so he explained the uh, the whole European Parliament election thing, so now I get that. So John Arthur, senior editor, Bloomberg Markets, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, trying to bring us up to date on all things Brexit, which is just never ending and uh, must be very difficult for the folks in the UK. Well, April is Autism Awareness Month, and help us deal, uh, explain and, and discuss this issue. We're very fortunate to welcome our next guest, Charles Massimo, CEO of CJM Wealth Management, also founder of Autism Communities. Charles, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the phone. You could you just first just tell us a little bit about your involvement with autism and why it's so important to you?
4: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I have two 19-year-old boys that were diagnosed with autism uh, when they were around a year and a half, and very early on I started wondering what's going to happen um, for them in their future and where they're going to live. So that's, what, that's where Autism Community started, is providing an opportunity for adults with autism to live independently outside, outside of their parents' homes.
1: Just uh, for people who may not be familiar with it, can you give us a sense of the scope of autism, just the sort of uh, increase in diagnoses and the degree to which there is assistance for people when they are younger, but at a certain point, uh, it gets more challenging to find that
0: help.
4: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. When, when you factor this in that every 11 minutes, a child is born who will be diagnosed with autism. That's the number that is astonishing. And right now there's over 5 million uh, people in this country with intellectual disabilities such, such as autism. And to your point, up until 21, the support is really good. Um, the, all, most, especially New York State, has gotten very good in providing supports, but after 21, those supports drop off a cliff. And there's probably not one parent that you'll speak to that won't tell you that the number one concern is, is where is my son or daughter going to live when we can no longer care for them. And that's a major epidemic that this country needs to address.
0: Uh, Charles, tell us how, so this autism community, what is the solution or, or part of the solution that you think you have?
4: Well, what we're trying, what we are doing, our mission, our mission really is to provide support and opportunities for adults with autism to live outside their homes in a Really, in an integrated community. So, we're teaming up with developers currently throughout Long Island, where within each development, we're going to have a number of residents 10 to 12 residents live in a truly integrated community. With the opportunity to really enhance every part of their life, instead of living in a group home that's isolated from a community, we want to provide them an opportunity to truly be integrated into a community.
1: Charles, it raises a question when you say you're working with developers, and you are a wealth manager, uh, right, for your day job. And and so I I want to sort of uh, talk about just the fact that there is actually an opportunity here for people... To basically, you know, make a difference and also uh, invest in something that's that's necessary and and in demand, right? I mean, there's there's sort of a, a cross purpose here, no?
4: Well, well, absolutely. The, again, the demand is huge when you factor over. Fifty five percent of adults with autism live with their parents until their parents die. And then it becomes a crisis situation. And, and if you think about the cost of housing, especially where we are in Long Island, New York, in, in, in all of New York state, the cost of providing housing for a family w- uh, with a child with autism is about one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars a year. And that's the crisis, and that's why we're trying to provide an affordable solution, teaming up with developers that recognize that this is in need with affordable housing and some other creative programs that we're working and partnering with local developers. The goal is not only to provide housing, but to provide affordable housing to every family.
0: Uh, so Charles, you mentioned uh, the, the cost there, which is just staggering. Um, talk to us about the fundraiser you have coming up and how you hope that will, will help the process.
4: Yeah, well, as a grassroots organization, you know, we, we rely on, on donations from individuals. And we're having a great fundraiser on Friday, this Friday, April 12th at Chateau Chateaubriand in Call Place. We did it last year. It was called um, um, Boogie Nights. And we, it was so successful that people said, hey, you need to do it again. So we're doing Boogie Nights, the remix again this Friday, April 12th from 7 p.m. to 1130 and it's going to be a, a band, that 70s band, a full dinner, some raffles, and really a night to come out and support an organization and a mission that is so needed, not just in Long Island, but really throughout this country.
1: Thank you so much for being with us. Charles Massimo is the chief executive officer of CJM Wealth Manager. Founder of Autism Communities, uh, they do have the fundraiser this Friday night, Boogie Night, uh, and it's going to be held at Chateau Briand in Carl Place. For more information, autismcommunities.org, autismcommunities.org for more information. And just to give you a sense of the scope of the problem, uh, the direct and indirect services as well as productivity costs of autism were pegged at a price tag of up to $367 billion for 2015. This, according to one study, uh, at least. So uh, a huge cost issue here, in addition to just the human issue of how to make people uh, integrate into society as as easily and, and wonderfully as possible, uh, in a way that does allow them to be productive members of the society.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we had Charles on today because it just highlights an issue that maybe we don't think about, which is uh, the adult life of the folks um, with autism and, and, and how they are cared for and how they are integrated and to what extent into society. And that, boy, that cost you mentioned, the annual cost of 100 to $200,000 a year uh, is just staggering. So you can see the need for um, uh, these types of fundraisers and, and this type of support. Ten years into this cycle of economic expansion has investors wondering how much is left. To help us get an answer to that, we welcome our next guest, Joe Brusuelas. Joe is a senior economist at RSM. He joins us live here on in our interactive broker studio in New York. Joe, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming here. So again, a couple of weeks ago, we had the yield curve invert, however, briefly, and that obviously raised concerns among a lot of investors about a significant economic slowdown. Do you see that?
5: Okay, so the economy's definitely decelerated, but a recession is just not in the cards this year, unless the Trump administration or the Fed makes a major mistake. So there are two ways to look at this. One is, if you want to look at the policy-sensitive curve, 10-year less 3 month. All right, what you need to do if you're a Bloomberg Terminal subscriber though, strip that out. Look at those risk neutral yields. If you look at the 10 year less one year, stripping out the risk premiums, the yield curve is still still positive. We're just not there yet in terms of a recession.
1: Okay, so this is something JP Morgan eliminated today as well where they were basically saying people are looking at the wrong yield curve when they look at that gap between 10 year and three month yields. What is the yield curve you should be looking at to determine? uh, whether there really is some sort of warning sign being flashed uh, by the okay. markets. If
5: you're going to hold a gun in my head and say, hey, you have to choose right now.
1: I'm not going to hold a gun to your oh, head. Oh, please, Just bore Lisa, the that Since we are on live radio, <laughs> I am not holding a gun uh, to Joe's head right now. Go on.
5: All right. So what you want to do again is you're going to look at that 10-year, less one year, stripping out the term premium risk. That's going to give you a pure look at the yield curve. And what it tells you is, yeah, growth slowed. Recession today? No. Now if we start throwing twenty five percent tariffs on all auto imports, if we tear up NAFTA, we can have a very different discussion.
0: So let's go to go there a little bit. Geopolitical risk. To what extent is You know, the economic slowdown in Europe, which is probably being exacerbated clearly by Brexit, Um, the trade issues with China, slowing growth in China. How much of some of those geopolitical issues inform your view of the US economy?
5: I just spent two weeks in London. We've got a pretty big exposure there in terms of our firm in in the UK and in Europe. It's as serious as a heart attack. Okay, Germany was the collateral damage uh, from the US-China trade spat. Their industrial production turned over last year, and it's just negative. Their manufacturing sector is going through contraction right now. Are they at a, in a recession? No, but they're at do- recession's doorstep. Clearly, things in the, in the UK have deteriorated. No one's in charge there right now. They're just meandering from day to day. The uncertainty tax levied on that economy from Brexit is significant, you know, Fixed business investment was down three point seven percent in the fourth quarter of last year. You have that happen, you're gonna see that economy slow well below one percent. It's exactly what's happened.
1: There's a question though, especially with respect to Germany, how much is this due to China's slowdown, right? Because that's a huge right. export uh, destination. And how much is that a scapegoat though?
5: Well, so here's what I think. You know, if you're gonna take you're gonna run your regression, right? You're an economist, what are you gonna get? You're going to get two things. No,
1: i am not you are going to get... Well, you should
5: be, Lisa. You've been here long enough.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you. And you went to Chicago. I mean, the best Chicago. All right. All right. All right. All right. What are you, what All do we right. We? Run so, the regression.
5: So look, what you're going to see is, is definitely a, a decrease in demand from China. But what you're also going to see is an endogenous result due to the problems at Volkswagen and the shifting to a more emissions-friendly environmental target. So you get, you get both external and external. And then they're both there. If you're really sort of an optimist, you say, well, it's not the Chinese. They're not really the cause of it. Um, It's what we did here. The truth is it's a little bit of both, but don't discount the disruption of those global supply chains due to the, the trade spat between the U.S. and China. We spent trillions of dollars building them over 25 years ago, and no one has an accurate and predictive model of what the global economy looks like if you begin to unwind those supply chains.
0: So I was gonna ask you, what are we not, what are we missing? What are we, in terms of our economic soft landing in the US to 2.5% GDP, what could come out of left field and just kind of shock the system and maybe push us into that recession?
5: Well, it's the national populism wave that's sweeping the world. This is, and the economies are doing fine if you leave them alone. It's policy that's causing the problem. And right now the deglobalization in some cases, the definancialization is the endogenous shock that you're going to see hit some of these economies if the leaders choose to pull, push forward on them. And that's a big if right okay, now. Okay, but
1: here's the thing. People have been saying this since President Trump was elected. Frankly, they've been saying this mm. since the Brexit vote. They've been saying this for a while. And, I, and I'm and i struck by the fact that the economic data isn't necessarily so clear cut. It's not necessarily bearing out that you're seeing the direct correlation between some of the populist movements and a, a severe decline in economic right. growth. So so what do you say to people who say, me. show me, prove it to me? Okay,
5: 2018 the end of the second quarter, we're in early June, the economy's at a 4.2% growth trend. We finished the year at a 2% growth trend, and if things sort of don't change, we're gonna be at 1% here in the quarter with downside risk. So clearly, once those trade measures, which impacted the economy with the six to nine month lag, started to show up, what happened? The economy slowed, and what are you hearing out of the White House right now? What did you hear from Mister Cudlow on the, on the you know the Sunday shows? They want a fifty percent, uh, want a 50 point basis cut. Really? You're going to do that with two hundred and fifty basis points left? If there's a recession anytime on your watch in your second administration, you're going to blow your ammo now. So okay, so yeah, yeah, there there's something there.
1: So in other words, the slowdown that we're seeing uh, in the U.S. momentum you're saying is very much due to the trade policies yep. uh, and and sort of the uh, the populist and anti-trade. Look, we're, we're we're
5: going to shift off a long-term regime. Um, if you're going to have that sort of regime change, you're going to have some disruption. You're seeing it play out in real time.
1: Joe Bruselas, thank you so much for being with us. Anytime, thank you guys. Fabulous having you on. Joe Bruselas uh, is senior economist at RSM, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers
0: studios.